you know, I'm seeing the tribes are saying, no, it's not part of the history of your California. It's our language. And it's not that it was our language. It is our language. In what is now California, close to 100 indigenous languages were spoken before Europeans arrived. According to UNESCO, most of the languages native to the Americas are critically endangered. Many others are entirely extinct. A new book by a UC Davis alumnus is the first ever published description of one of those languages, Patwin or Putwin, originally spoken in hundreds of communities in Northern California. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Native Americans have been working to preserve and revive the state's indigenous languages for at least the last 20 years. In a grammar of Putwin, Lewis Lawyer brings together 200 years of word lists, notebooks, audio recordings, and archival material to create an invaluable linguistic resource and reference, the first of its kind. Welcome to The Backdrop, Lewis. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, you know, before we start, I've heard the language pronounced a couple of different ways, Patwin and Putwin. Which is correct? Well, that's a good question. Um, the native pronunciation would be closer to, to Putwin. Um, but, yeah, I guess when you read the word in English, it, it looks like Patwin, so people say Patwin. I would say Putwin is probably closer to correct. Okay, all right, I'll stick with Putwin here. So, um, so let's put Putwin into context. Where was it the predominant language? When was that? And at its peak, how many people were speaking it? So Putwin is the native language of Davis, actually, um, and the area surrounding Davis. So basically the whole southwestern drainage of the Sacramento River, um, so that includes the, the Puda Creek uh, watershed and almost all the Cache Creek watershed uh, all the way up to almost to Clear Lake, but not quite. And yeah, uh, all the way up to the, the northern the northern side of the Calusa County. So really kind of a big area by, uh, by California language standards. Mm -hmm. And there were something in the neighborhood of 30,000 people um, speaking the language 200 years ago. And as you mentioned, they were in a, a few hundred villages. So there wasn't central Putwin government uh, at any time. It was a system of politically independent, but allied and trading and, and uh, you know, interdependent societies. Right. So in 30,000 people back 200 years ago, I mean, that was a that was a significant civilization going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a sizable group. Definitely. I mean, they live in a very rich area of the world. If you think about the natural resources available in the Yolo wetland area and uh, in the hills and in the grassland and, and all the way down, you know, along Sassoon Bay and the Sassoon Marshes there, an incredibly rich uh, area. So it, it could support a lot of people. Yeah. So fast forward to today, how many people are, are speaking the language today? Well, the exact number isn't really known. Um, to my knowledge, uh, there's, there's uh, one person who um, grew up speaking the language. So one, one sort of native first language uh, speaker still around. But mm. there are a lot of learners. Um, there's a number of active learning communities, actually, you know, all, all three of the federally recognized uh, Putwin tribes have uh, learners learning the language, and there are teachers doing amazing work, amazing work there. There are also people who aren't working directly with the tribes doing their own learning. So there are a number of speakers these days, uh, and, and 
they're predominantly learners of the language. Right. Is it is it considered an endangered language or a critically endangered language at this point? Yes. I'm sure if you looked at those global sort of statistics, it would be called critically endangered. Um, yes. In fact, I'm sure it is. I When I started this project, the International Organization of Standards didn't recognize the existence of the language at all. They, they mm. uh, called it a dialect of Wintu, which is actually a different related language. So I worked with them to to add uh, Putwin to the the ISO classification, and I think they I think they classified it as critically endangered. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know those those labels aren't the most useful labels all the time. You know some folks find words like endangered to be offensive because it sounds like you know they're being treated like a species of wild animal or something. Mm-hmm. Um, really, it's a, it's a language. It's a living language. Uh, its people are still here and uh, they're still speaking the language. So. So how did Putwin become this language that wasn't being used anymore? Was there kind of a, a deliberate effort to eradicate it, or was it more of a gradual assimilation into the languages European settlers used? Yeah, well, it was a little bit of both. So, you know, the story that you're more likely to hear in school is that, you know, sort of, well, the Europeans came in and that was that ended up being the dominant culture, and so people sort of, you know, the, the native people joined into that culture and started speaking the language. In fact, it was a lot more violent and deliberate than that. Um, People, children were taken from their families and put in boarding schools where they were not allowed to speak their language. um, And they were physically punished if they did speak their language. And, um, you know, indigenous people had no no rights. Uh, They weren't allowed to represent themselves in court. So, so they couldn't defend themselves legally against things that white people did to them. And, you know, so basically there was a lot of violence against Native people. And in fact, some counties, I don't think Yolo County, but some counties uh, and, and the state and federal government, I believe, are known to have offered bounties for, you know, settlers killing Native people. So there's a lot of really deliberate and, and unfortunately state-sponsored violence uh, mm-hmm. going on against Native people. Um, physically, their bodies, and then also cultural violence going on at places like uh, missions and boarding schools, and just just sort of the world in general. It wasn't very, it wasn't safe to be a native person for a long time uh, in California. Right. Um, so that situation has recently changed. I, I think. So it's it's kind of not surprising that the language almost became extinct, but people are still keeping it alive. Let's listen to an archival clip you brought to get a sense of what Putwin sounds like. That recording we just listened to is um, by a speaker named Sarah Gonzalez. She's a River Putwin speaker from uh, Grimes, which is up near Calusa. She that was recorded in in the 1960s. So what the story is is um, the beginning of the creation story. This is a story about how the world was first made. What Sarah Gonzalez was saying just then was that in in the beginning there uh, it was all water. There's water everywhere, and turtle, peregrine, falcon, and coyote are in a boat, and they're they're sitting in a boat, and they're floating up there way up above, and at some point, peregrine 
got tired or bored and he said he said let's plan something and turtle says okay and that's that's the bit of the story we just heard but those mm-hmm. those three end up and turtle specifically ends up playing a big role in creating creating the world you know it kind of sounds familiar and unfamiliar at the same time is it related to any other languages from say other continents that's a good question too um not not that is known it's known that it's related to two other languages for sure. It's related to Wintu up in uh, the northern Sacramento Valley and the surrounding uh, mountains to the west, and uh, Nomlaki, which is in between in between the two. So we know that those three languages are related to one another. That's called the Wintuan language family. And there's a theory that the Wintuan language family is part of a larger language family called Penutian, um, which stretches all uh, throughout the West Coast. It's not the only group on the West Coast, but there are many, many um, hypothetically Penutian languages on the West Coast, all the way from British Columbia down into California. Um, and those are languages like just across the Sacramento River, the, the Nisanan language and the, the Konkau language, and also in the Bay Area, the, um, the Ohlone languages. Those are all Penutian languages, for example. So mm-hmm. there's that theory. And then people have, people have tried to figure out wider connections where the Penutian languages are related to languages from elsewhere. But even the Penutian hypothesis is not universally accepted, so... I would say it's definitely related to two other languages and um, <laughs> potentially many more. You know, part of the problem is that, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, there's about 100 languages in California, and not all of them have been studied very well. Uh, one of the reasons that I did this project is that I was trying to include some California languages in a, in a global language database that I was building about something else. And I could barely find any information about them. And I, I surprised myself by realizing that I didn't know anything about the language uh, that was spoken where I grew up. I grew up in Davis. I didn't even know what it was called. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, this goes back to the sort of crisis of documentation. There's all these, all these learners who want to learn Putwin. You can't just go to a bookstore and, you know, get by the Putwin dictionary and buy the Putwin learning books. It doesn't exist. And so that's, you know, the animating thing here for us, us documentary linguists is to just try to get that information into a readable form, basically. Right. So, I mean, like your journey into this was you weren't actually looking to study this language at all, but you just found a dearth of information about it and you just kind of made it your mission to create some documentation around it. Yeah, uh, that's right. You know, like I say, I was building a database of something else and realized that there wasn't any information. And at the same time, I was kind of realizing I was I was starting to feel like my work in sort of abstract linguistics was not directly applicable to the world. Just in my personal opinion, I was starting to have a crisis of confidence in my own work and I realized, you know, oh my gosh, I have all these skills about describing language structure and there are no descriptive materials for the languages in the place that I'm from. Hey, (laughs) I can do something really useful here. I can make a book that people will potentially be reading for a really long time. Um, just because it's, it's going to be sort of a primary reference for, for a language. And so I turn my attention to that. 
So as a linguist, you know, what's, what's unique about the language? Or maybe what's, what's a major difference between Putwin and, say, English to give people a sense of the language? Yeah, there, there are differences on a variety of levels. One of the first things you might notice is the, the sounds. Uh, in that clip we were listening to, some sounds are, are very familiar. They've got, you know, M's and uh, L's and sort of a lot of the sounds that we do have in English. But some of them are less familiar the way that uh, we're saying butwin and trying to be sort of close to the the native pronunciation there, that has an unaspirated P. So instead of saying putwin or patwin, you kind of say it with a muted P, like the Spanish P, putwin. And that's a, that's a putwin sound. But they also have the, the aspirated P. So they make a distinction there, uh, like between the Spanish sounding P and the, the English sounding P. Um, that may not be interesting for normal people, but we linguists are very <laughs> excited by things like that. <laughs> well, it's those differences that really make, yeah, those differences really kind of, you can tell when like a native speaker of a certain language is speaking it. And maybe when someone's speaking it as a foreign language, those little differences are kind of what kind of really stand out. Absolutely. And other things like they can have uh, an H at the end of a word. Um, in that recording, we heard the word for boat, which is nu. And there's a huh at the end, which is just something you couldn't do in English. Um, but there's some, some even more striking sounds. They have the sh sound. Um, so in the word pisla, which means over there, there's a sh, which is kind of like uh, the Welsh double L is a similar sound. So mm. anyway, there's there's some interesting sounds when you when you kind of focus in on, on the the rhythm of the language as it's spoken and the individual sounds themselves are, are quite different from English. And I think I read that word order doesn't play such a great role as it does in other languages. So Yeah, is... it plays a different role in Putwin. So whatever you, you want to focus on, you put at the beginning of the sentence, and then you kind of say the rest of the words, and you have a lot of freedom about what order they go in. So if you want to say, you know, um, I found the example, a, a speaker named Oscar McDaniel said the sentence, that dog bit me. But the way that he chose to say it in that moment was that me dog bit, I think. Or mm. maybe it was that me bit dog. The point mm. is that you take the actual phrase that dog and he split it across the sentence. So not only can you take the, the phrases like that dog and me and put them in any order, and you can, but you can also take the individual phrases like that dog and you can split them up and put other stuff in the middle of it. So the word order is radically different from what you see in English. It's fascinating because, you know, to an English speaker, that would be confusing. Like, did, I, did, did he bite the dog or did the dog bite him? Well, and actually, um, it's, uh, it's case marking is what helps with that. So kind of like in, in Latin, some people might be familiar with. You know, you, you can do that too. Summa cum laude. Mm -hmm. Summa laude is a phrase, but it's split. You, know, put the, you put the preposition right in the middle there because Latin is also interesting in this way. But it's because summa and laude are in the same case. And it's the same with that and dog in this sentence that Oscar McDaniel said. They're both in the, the object case, so you can tell that they're both parts of the object of the sentence. Got it. Okay, interesting. Yeah. The structure of the verb is also interesting. It's much more complicated than in English. So it's got a root, but then you can add lots of different elements on top of that root. You can layer it like a big, I don't know, like I almost said like a big cake, but you know, you, mm -hmm. you can add layers and layers and layers of meaning to this little root. 
Um, you can reduplicate it so you can say the root more than once. Um, you can add a little suffix that means that the action goes back on itself, so it's reflexive, or that the action um, is, is passive uh, or reciprocal. You can say it in a, in a way that is not committing to the reality of what happened, called mm. irrealis. So some speakers use that for telling stories or saying a negative. Um, I, you know, I could go on and on about the verb. That's mm. the longest chapter in the book. It's really a complicated structure, and it's something that takes your mind a long time to, to wrap itself around. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a very sophisticated language. Was it? Yes. Was it? Is it a written language? I mean, or, or, or do you notate it with like using the Roman alphabet? Yeah. Well, there's a little bit of both, really. I mean, so it didn't have a written uh, script before Europeans came, so it's not a written language in that way. There are meaningful systems of of symbols, like in in basketry patterns and in in. Uh, rock drawings. But the, the language didn't have a written system back before contact. So all the first writings of the language are Europeans or settlers writing it the way that they hear it. So either in sort of their own special way that they come up with, or some of mm -hmm. them are trained linguists, so they write it down in a, in a phonetic script. But now I would say that there is, well, there are multiple um, native scripts because the tribes are working to develop their own scripts. Hmm. None of them are just following linguistic tradition. They're all coming up with their own ways that make sense to them to write their language down. So I would say actually recently, so within the last couple decades, their uh, native scripts are being developed for these languages. They're based on the, the Roman script because Every one of those tribes now is is literate in in English. So once you decided to do this to document the Putwin language, how did you go about gathering all the materials from all over? That was quite a task. <laughs> um, although it's it's well, I say that it's pretty easy these days because of the internet, to be honest. But it was it was a task. So um, there had been linguists before me who had studied uh, Putwin, and. But most of them hadn't published much, so there wasn't much in the way of a bibliography of materials to go from. So I had to build my own. And right away, I wanted to make that one of the things that I shared. So I, I constantly shared updated versions of my bibliography with, uh, with tribal members that I was in contact with, because I know that they were building their own archives and trying to make complete collections of, of archival material as well. I ended up finding archival material all over the place. Um, there's a, a collection at Berkeley because there was a, a very active documentation program there for Californian languages. For this language, it was, it was between the 50s and the, the 70s. Also in the Special Collections Library at Berkeley, the Bancroft, they have some older documents. Uh, there's one, the oldest word list is, is held there from 1821 uh, that was taken in the Spanish mission. But then there's also Putwin archival material in Philadelphia at the American Philosophical Society. There is some in Bloomington, Indiana, um, at the Archives of Traditional Music there. Um, not music. In this case, it was just a word, a word list, an important one, actually. There is a museum in L.A. that ha is famous for its Gene Autry collection, but also it has a research library, and they have some... Some of the only uh, documentation of the of the South Putwin dialect, which is 
uh, the one around Sassoon, was written by one of the Vallejo brothers, and uh, it's it's stored in that museum in L.A. So it's really it's just all over the place, and there's some in Chico that I haven't actually del- delved into in the Miriam Library up there. There's just really a lot of material, and so I was spoiled in that way. Some some sleeping languages don't have a lot of material, and you really have to just use one person's work and do as much as you can with it. Bronwyn has a lot of people who worked on it, actually, and so there was a lot of material, but then it becomes difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. They all have their own writing system. They all had their own different reasons for doing research. They all had a different level of skill in documenting languages. Um, and and there's no index. And some of them have, you know, 10 notebooks or seven notebooks, and it's just whatever they happen to be talking about that day is scribbled in these notebooks or audio recordings. Right. So one of the things I did, other than gathering materials and documenting which materials I had gathered, I also wanted to index the language in those materials so that if I wanted to know about the word for tree, I could just search the word for tree in a central database and I didn't have to page through dozens of notebooks and hours of audio material every time I wanted to know about one word. Right. So I built myself a database um, that I used to query the language. And I ran ran a little course with undergrad assistants for a while who were helping to digitize the English side so it could all be indexed. And it's really useful. I still use it all the time. So when people contact me and ask me for a word or something, I can pretty easily call it up. I mean, you you were very fortunate that there was a lot of source material, but the fact that no one ever actually sat down to kind of bring it all together to make sense of it. I mean, you you basically are providing this amazing academic but also cultural service um, to help to preserve and, and even kind of promote the continuance of this language. That's the goal. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, you know, I play a non-central role in the continuance of the language, and I'm pretty adamant about that. When I first got into this, I was thinking, you know, wow, I'm going to really be, you know, I'm, I'm going to really play a pretty heroic role in this, in this language. Uh, and I learned right away that that's just not, it's not the right approach for a, a settler to take. I am very happy to use the skills that I have as a linguist, that I've been lucky enough to develop as a linguist, to help make reference material for this language. But nothing I can do is going to make the language continue and survive, in a way. That's sort of maybe an extreme way of saying it, but it's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. Nothing, no knowledge that I learn matters. The point is for the people whose language it, it is, so the, the Prutland people themselves, the Wintun people, you know, it's it's because of them that the language is surviving and continuing, and they are carrying it on, and they're doing all the work. So, you know, people like me uh, and institutions like the University of California and, you know, funding institutions like the NSF we can provide a supporting role to provide materials uh, for those communities, but it's it's the communities that are really doing all all the work. And they are they are doing that work in what ways? They are holding classes and and things of that nature. Anything you can imagine, yeah, classes, uh, mentorships, um, just valuing and learning from cultural people. 
there there were whole generations uh, that got swept up into this reg- residential school system, and so it ends up being kind of rare to have people who remember what used to be everyday things that everybody would have known how to how to weave a basket, and everyone would have known the traditional foods. These were obvious sort of universal things, and and that knowledge got shockingly close to just completely disappearing, and so the communities are really good at identifying the people who still have this knowledge and promoting them and learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't even list all the ways that they're, that they're doing it, but it's really impressive to me. Right. And just to, to, for people who don't know about the residential school system, there was a whole school system where the, I guess the predominant Western European settler culture created these residential schools where they would take young Native American children and take them from the family, put them in these boarding schools to kind of westernize them. And uh, that's almost eradicated the language and the culture and, and other things, right? You know, yes, the, those um, those residential schools were definitely a place where the, the predominant culture, you know, Euro, Euro-American culture tried to educate Native people and, and a, a lot of Native culture ended up disappearing there. But it, it was a lot more active than than that. Um, the guy who founded the uh, Carlisle Indian School um, in Pennsylvania, which ended up being a template, I think, for, for residential schools around the country, he, his famous quote is, um, kill the Indian and save the man. And his idea was that you needed to eradicate native culture in order to civilize mm-hmm. people which is a violent idea. And he was in charge of schools and children and children went there to these schools and just were not, they were not well taken care of. Their culture was literally beaten out of them. They were very, very violent places and they, they had a very big effect. I mean, when you think about the, the speed with which, um, these cultures became so threatened. It's, it's astonishingly fast. Right. Uh, you know, take Davis, for instance. So 180, 190 years ago, everyone in Davis, and there was definitely a, a village at Davis from, from as long as we can remember, everyone there just spoke Putwin. That was the, the language of everyday life. And everyone's culture there was Putwin culture because that was just the culture that had always been there. And it was this deep and, you know, the people had been there for, for a couple thousand years, as far as we know, living in this way. And fast forward to today, not really very, very long after that. And nobody knows the name of the village that was at Davis. Mm-hmm. We literally don't know what it was called. And we don't know what dialect of Putwin was spoken there. It was not documented and it is lost. Um, it's it's just, it was so effective, this program of re-education. Uh, so, so terribly effective. So, yeah, this that's the sort of um, theater that you find yourself in when you as a sort of unsuspecting theoretical linguist decide to go make a difference with the native American language. And all of a sudden, all these things that you never learned in school become really important. And you realize what a different world it looks like from a native American person's eyes. So I, I really just try to sort of sit back and listen when it comes to all that. Mm. So in general, like as a linguist, um, why is it important to keep languages alive? I mean, somebody might, 
think like, okay, what happened was terrible, but is it worth trying to keep a language that not many people speak alive? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And there's a couple ways of answering it. I would say from the perspective of an academic or a, a traditional linguist, one of the answers that often comes out is, well, you know, if, if you lose a language, um, you lose all the knowledge that's encoded in that language. And so already we have a hard time piecing back together the kind of knowledge of landscape and fauna and flora that was present in native California for thousands of years because the, the languages are going and with them goes a lot of knowledge. So that's one way of answering that question. But really, I think a better answer that I've come to learn is just because it's it can't be our decision. We can't just let it happen. Because of the history of violence against these cultures, you can't just say, what's another language? You, you can't just let it go. This is a problem that Western cultures have caused, not just in America, but around the world. This history of colonialism and violence um, is causing a lot of destruction of people's languages. And if they don't want to lose the language, then they shouldn't have to lose the language. This is, again, you know, decentering myself because it's really not my decision whether mm -hmm. the language should or shouldn't go. But in my experience, nobody wants the languages to go. Um, and it's not just because of the loss to the scientific community of the understanding of local fauna. It's because of human rights. It's, it's a people's right to have a culture, and it's a people's right to have a language. And that's the problem with, you know, languages uh, falling asleep. Where do you see the Putwin language, say, like 10 years from now or, or 20 years from now? That's a really good question. One thing that you can definitely see is that the tribes are now in a position to really reclaim it. So it's no longer something that academics will go out in the field and document and put in an archive because it's important knowledge for scientists to have and it belongs to the world or it's part of the history of California or something like that. You know, I'm seeing the tribes are saying, no, it's not part of the history of your California. It's our language. It, and it's, it, what, it's not that it was our language. It is our language. And, you know, so the tribes are making themselves the centers of things like developing spelling systems and developing archives of languages and developing teaching programs for their children and for adults and making the decisions about what books should be made and how they should be made and who should get them. And all of those things are now becoming more controlled by the, uh, by the Putwin people themselves in a way that really they, they always should have been. Uh, but now, now it seems like the, the people are in a position to, to do that more. So I can definitely predict that that's going to keep on happening. And I'm pretty optimistic about the number of speakers and stuff, too. I really, I'm an optimist by nature, but <laughs> I see all the people learning and the, you know, how much it means to people to, to learn language, and it's, it's still going. I hear people speak it, and it's, uh, it's still going. Well, Louis, this has been really great, very enlightening. Um, thanks so much for coming on to The Backdrop. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's been really a pleasure to be here, so thanks for having me. 
Lewis Lawyer is a linguist, UC Davis alumnus, and author of A Grammar of Putwin. Find out more about his work and the Putwin language on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. And if you like The Backdrop, check out our other UC Davis podcast, Unfold. It breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. Join public radio veteran and host Amy Quinton and co-host Kat Curlin for Unfold. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Satirius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. ¶¶